Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. She suffered as a victim of human trafficking as a young adult. Now, Donna Bruce has dedicated her life to helping other victims of trauma. In this episode of the Free To Be More podcast, she speaks out about how she became an advocate, overcoming her past, inspiring her purpose. Donna Bruce, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Donna, for people who don't know you, just tell me a little bit about yourself and the work that you're doing here in Baltimore. Uh, My name is Donna Bruce. I'm a social justice advocate and I advocate for a lot of things, human trafficking, substance abuse, mental health, just various issues that have been kind of like brushed over as a moral deficiency opposed to an illness, a disease or, you know, childhood traumas. So I actually work a lot in the community with helping provide resolution and resources and serve as a resource program in the community. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about how your own life has kind of impacted these particular subjects that you're advocating for. What has happened to you within your life that has made you stand up and want to advocate for other victims of trauma? Well, I'm a lifelong resident of Baltimore City. I grew up in flag house projects with my mom and my stepdad. And growing up in Baltimore City was, it was definitely hard. It was definitely hard. My mother suffered from substance abuse problems. And I would like to say mental health because now that I go back and I look at all the things that she's been through, there definitely was some mental health issues, but not diagnosed there. You know, I've watched my mother go through her own substance abuse issues and being exposed and exploited by her then lifelong boyfriend on the block. I can recall, you know, the police being called every single day to the house to the point that my mother had a code that she would stomp her feet three times. And my older sister knew that that was to call the police to intervene from the uh, physical abuse and mental abuse that she was being subjected to in her own life, which in turn, you know, it became a generational curse. A lot of the things that she was exposed to, she passed down to her children because she didn't know better. They didn't have a lot of programs back then. And it it was kind of like what went on in this house, stayed in this house. And um, my mother didn't get the necessary help that she needed. So growing up for me was really difficult. Um, I, I do have my father in my life who's always been in my life, who's been a light in my life. But however, he didn't have the access to be able to continue to pour into me the way that he wanted to. And, and all I longed for was uh, a relationship with my mother. And speaking on that, um, as I got into my young adult years, again, my mother still struggled with substance abuse. And back then they called it partying. <laughs> um, it wasn't words like exploitation or human trafficking. It was like, okay, mommy said, go over here and meet this guy and do this and do that. And that's what Mm -hmm. I did to build that relationship with my mother, only to find out after doing some work and research and working with people like Ms. Uh, Jessica Emerson at the University of Baltimore Human Trafficking Project that that was called considered human trafficking. Mm -hmm. So that was a hard pill to swallow. So that's how I got into the work of what I'm doing. You know, I'm in... um, long-term recovery myself and um, 
just my own lived experiences gives me the fortitude to be able to say, I know exactly where you are and this is how I overcame. And let me show you how to help you get through certain situations like that. One thing that you mentioned, I want to get back to the human trafficking, but one thing you mentioned that I thought was so profound is that, you know, back then mental illness went undiagnosed. It was something that stayed inside the four walls of a home How has that, or how have you seen that change now? And how are people finding help for those mental illnesses that prior were just something that were something that was hidden? Well, definitely in the Black community, it's taboo. Nobody's talking about, I'm going to see my therapist or I'm diagnosed with schizophrenia or, you know, let me back up. I had an aunt in a family that used to tell this story every time at Thanksgiving that everyone needed to get tested out because we had a full-blooded Cherokee uncle or cousin that used to sit on the porch naked with a shotgun. And we laughed at that when we were kids. We were like, oh, we don't know what she's talking about. Like, But it's actually showing up now um, in this generation that I'm in. And again, it's different now because it's because back then they did things like my mother was born and raised in North New Jersey. They sent her to Baltimore. So they would send you away. Mm-hmm. You know, they would send you away or, or hide you in the basement or put you in a room. You know, we always knew it was something wrong with that particular aunt who just stayed in the room all the time. Whereas mm-hmm. now, because it is widely openly more talked about and spoken about in homes that it's okay to say that I'm not okay and there may be something wrong with me and get a true diagnosis. So it's the help is more prevalent and it's not frowned upon anymore. So all the stigma that comes with it is now being debunked and, you know, those are myths. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's okay to say that you have a mental health disorder and these are the facilities, are the programs and things like that that can assist you with it. So, um, it definitely has changed. Mm-hmm. Going back to talking about as a young adult, you were a victim of human trafficking. I um, didn't know that language for it at that time. I guess that's like not a term. That's kind of like a newer term. How did that impact you later on in your life? Oh, the shame, the guilt, the embarrassment, the um, hiding behind. It, it went through different stages. Because it transferred from my mother to men to because uh, I became more promiscuous. And, and I met a guy. He said, you know what? I'll protect you if you go and dance down the block. You know, mm-hmm. if you really want to make some money and you don't have to be giving your mother half of the drugs or the money anymore, you can make your own money. And it expanded from there, you know, with the men and the unknown men that I met and the substance abuse and all of it went into play. and and you know, ended up in several really bad situations as a result of the lifestyle that I did choose with that. Mm-hmm. It also had an impact on you legally, didn't it? Absolutely. So there were times when, you know, guys, okay, you want to stay here, then you need to go out and make some money and bring me some money home and some money and drugs or, um, well, we need food. You need to go come with me so we can steal food, which accumulated several charges on my record as a direct result of being trafficked by various guys. And I mean, from driving without a license, just trying to survive, mm-hmm. trying to survive the best way that I knew how with the information I had and being fearful. I did what was told of me. 
without question, because I had already been groomed in that mindset to do what I supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And don't ask questions, but just do it. So yeah, I did accumulate several charges on my record, which in turn, it affected me with employment. Um, it affected me with getting my cosmetology license. I had to sit before the board when I got in recovery and, and explain to them, how did I get these charges on my record? So I felt like I was at a dead end street. Or even I did an article with the Baltimore Sun, Maryland is an unforgiving state for trafficking victims, where mm-hmm. I spoke about lobbying for laws to be changed, standing in front of a classroom of my cosmetology students where they had the ability to go on Maryland Judiciary case search and look at my record and expose me in front of my classroom and talk about the charges. And the charges in black and white is something, but to actually be triggered by that and have to live through those experiences again was Mm -hmm. traumatic for me. Mm -hmm. So again, I met with um, Jessica Emerson at the University of Maryland Walkland. She has the human trafficking division down there where she helped human traffickers in different, you know, advocacy and legal issues. And we began lobbying for uh, the True Freedom Act. She had started that bill along with some others. And I remember testifying Mm -hmm. back in 2019. And I shared with them how it was for me just trying to live a true life free of my past and having an opportunity to for people to see me and who I am opposed to what they read on the record. And it passed, it's called the True Freedom Act of 2020, that any victims under the duress of a human trafficker can now have their criminal records vacated. And I'm honored to say that I was one of the first <laughs> to have my criminal record vacated. And that's where my advocacy, that big A came in that, you know, I'm going to create change. So Don't feel sorry for me for everything that I've been through, but this is what I'm doing now. So my pain became a purpose in helping other people. What does that mean to you? Because, I mean, you were brave enough to get out there, testify, tell your story. And now that's going to affect generations of people that come after you that were victims like you. Wow, Megan, I just got chills when you when you said that because I'm operating out of place of love and compassion. I wasn't even thinking about generations to come. It was just that there has to be some type of law here to help people get their lives back on track. And right now I'm I'm speechless. I just got chills just thinking about it because that is a big deal. But when I'm operating and I'm moving, I'm not looking for returns. I'm moving because this is what needs to be done. God, give me the carriage to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. Change laws in the state of Maryland. Yeah, I actually helped did that. Wow. (laughs) The Free to Be More podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Introducing the Pratt Test Kitchen. Celebrating the diversity and creativity of Baltimore culinary scene through programs and events for all ages. More details at prattlibrary.org. Have you been able to meet any other victims that have been able to thank you and had their records expunged as well? I have not had an opportunity to meet another survivor at this time, but I am a part of Maryland Survivors Group, uh, Shamir McKenzie. She is my mentor who, that's what she does for a living. She travels the world and speaks of human trafficking. 
if you Google her, you'll see all kinds of things. Her name is Shamir McKenzie. And we formed a Maryland survivors group where a group of survivor leaders who are living healthy lives come together and we talk about ways to help people that's coming behind us, you know, at the grassroots level. And it's just a place for us to come when we are having emotional days because some days can be triggering. Not every day is a good day. It's a constant healing process. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure it's just a matter of time until another survivor comes and thanks you for fighting the fight that let them expunge their record and start fresh and really be on the path to recovery. That's really yes. remarkable. Thank you. Um, the other thing for you, I mean, you are by trade a cosmetologist, a beautician. How do you leverage that position to help others? Because it is a really unique position to be in because people really have that trust in the person that they go to see on a regular basis. Absolutely. So actually I wear many hats. Yes, you do. Uh, <laughs> I am a, I'm also a registered medical assistant, a certified peer supervisor through the Maryland Addiction Behavior Health Board, and also a senior cosmetologist. And all these positions are actually still serving and helping people. And how it works out for me in this industry now, Troy State and Oh my gosh, this guy hunted me down for like a year. He called me every day because at this time I was lobbying for different bills, uh, the Sex Child Trafficking Act, you know, that the children can now get screening, you know. So I was lobbying and I was doing my thing. And I guess he was aware of what I was doing. And he's like, I need you on my team. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm not connected with all this legislation and things like that. So I said, okay, let me see. What is it that you need me to do? And at that time, he was working with Councilman Zeke Cohen, and they were doing the Hill and City Summit, and they brought me on board. And it was like, okay, we have a young lady who was murdered in her salon, and we need you to spearhead this Destiny String Scholarship because you have connections with, you know, different stylists and students in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And um First, I got together with the stylists and I brought them on board for the Healing City Summit that was at uh, Coppin State University, where we actually did people hair. And there was young ladies that were students, possibly of Coppin, who had never even gotten their hair done because they were current students and couldn't afford it. So just being able to meet the need, uh, there was another older lady who had never gotten her hair done before. And she also had mental health issues. But because there were resources right there at Coppin, I was able to do her hair and just say, now you can go over here and talk to this organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, Back to the Destiny's Dream Scholarship. Yeah, so Council Cohen said, um, can you, and I spearheaded that we were looking for $5,000. I think we got over $70,000 where we started at Mervo, Mergenthaler High School, I spoke to them like, what is the need there? They're like, well, they need kits and they need uniforms and they need, I say, okay, so now they get $1,000 for, um, we chose five students at that particular time and we came together in front of Merrill and we presented them with $1,000 a piece and they were so happy and their parents were happy and now they can go on and pursue and live their dream out of being a licensed cosmetologist as well as still keeping the young lady, Destiny Harrison, a dream alive with her passion, how energetic she was. And her life was just taken from her in a short amount of time. She was a beautiful young lady from what I know of. I actually used to teach her mother at cosmetology school. So Baltimore is small. 
Uh, and then, and then true, not, for people that don't know Destiny Harrison and the story of, of what happened to her, can you just give a little brief synopsis of who she was and what happened? Well, she was a young lady. I forgot her age. She had one child. She had a, a salon over in East Baltimore that was booming. Um, very very energetic. I didn't know her personally. Again, I knew her mother, but just from the energy that was there at different press conferences that we had, she was well-loved. Mm-hmm. She was well-loved and she was hungry for this industry that we use in. Uh, very gifted and talented by the work, her hairstyles and the work that was being presented on different platforms, social media platforms. And again, she was, she was murdered in her salon. Um, I had an opportunity to go into her salon um, and I was asked to pray. And I'm a very spiritual woman and um, I couldn't pray. I don't know. Whatever happened in that salon was definitely horrific. Destiny is one of many victims of violence in the city of Baltimore. And there are so many people that are left behind traumatized by violence what are some of the things you feel like the Healing Cities Act or the movement around that can do to try and heal some of the people that are suffering from trauma like that? Well, again, we being in a position that I'm in as a hairstylist, people trust me. Mm-hmm. Um, my life is an open book. They see a lot of things that I have gone through and they draw strength just from me being who I am, a genuine person who does their hair and they trust me with their hair and their hair color, so forth and so on. So again, just to be able to guide them into healing, into resources, um, more than a shop with Troy State. And, you know, you have the health department that provides different informational sessions on different topics, such as, you know, debunking the myth of COVID and not getting your vaccine. So just giving out information is the most important thing, uh, true information, you know, not what I think, but facts about what it is. And this is what what's going on. Did I answer your question? (laughs) What kind of difference does it make, though? You know, I think the health department can go out there and hold press conferences and different, uh, you know, social services can come out and say, we can do this, this, and this. What difference does it make coming from you, who is a person who they trust and they come see all the time? That's it. You just said it, Megan. They trust me. I have a rapport with my clientele. When people pass away in their families, they call Mm -hmm. me. I go in, I do the deceased hair. So that's it right there. It's that rapport that they have built with me that they trust me. So mm-hmm. that right there in and of itself is enough to say, you know what? If, I mean, I've had clients who have younger younger kids, young, young adult, young ladies. And mm-hmm. but this is a great example. I don't know anything about only fans or fans only or whatever. And, <laughs> me either. <laughs> And she called me and she said, listen, my daughter is 16. She's been on this only fan page. I remember reading some stuff and you sharing some stuff with me. Can you help my daughter? Mm-hmm. I'm not a licensed therapist, but I'm a person with lived experiences that they trust with their children. So I went in, I did the research and this only fan thing is like you show a different part of your body. They'll cash up your money. I'm like, mm-hmm. this is a form of human trafficking. Like, exploitation this is Mm -hmm. they're on the computers now so during COVID it's like it was open season 
mm-hmm. because nobody was being accountable for the young people, young men included. Mm-hmm. You know, everything was via social media. So tell me how you were able to help that young woman with the OnlyFans page. That's how she got to my house. She came and got her hair done. <laughs> I couldn't just jump in. And that's how it works a lot of times. Um, once they sit in your chair, you build a rapport. And um, she sat in my chair and I just began to ask her, what else that you like to do? You know, like, because, you know, they like the lashes, they like the hair. They, I said, you know, I could teach you how to do that stuff. And I started inviting her over to show her different things, like how to apply lashes or how to do a weave install. Mm-hmm. And then I think the third time I met with her, I explained, I asked her about her OnlyFan page and um, she began to tell me. Mm-hmm. And I said, is that what you want in life? You know, you could be seriously hurt. And I gave us some examples. I have some wounds on me where I have been stabbed and left in the alley. And I showed her that and I showed her the wound on my arm where I had been stabbed. And the look on her face was priceless. It was like, wow, you look nothing like any of that, Miss Donna. And I said, exactly. I don't. And that's why I'm here to help you. I eventually lost contact with her. And um, I hope all is well with her. Looking for the top titles for your book club? The Pratt Library has all the new releases available in books, ebooks, and audiobooks. No library card? No problem. Download the Pratt Library e-card in minutes. Get yours at prattlibrary.org. So one of the other arenas where you're really making a difference and helping people is people that are trying to recover from substance abuse. I know you mentioned that your mom had an issue with substance abuse, but how else has substance abuse impacted your life? Oh, wow. Um, It took a lot for me. Mm -hmm. It took a lot for me. Um, I have a set of twins and um, I had them while I was actively using it probably about 30 now. Again, that's how screwed up my mind was. And I, I put them up for adoption and I tried to make contact with them. And that was several years ago. And they said they didn't want to make contact with me. And I'm like, and I went through a whole phase with that because, you know, at that time I was early in recovery, I was doing well. And I felt hurt that they didn't want to contact me. So even in that instance, I, I, I gained a job working with substance abuse, newborns. Mm-hmm. So, and, and and sitting here thinking about how everything transitioned, it was always because of something that happened to me that made me want to mm-hmm. change it. And I began working with substance abuse, newborns, um, and Arundel County. And I would go in and again, that one-on-one experience and that lived experience was able to help young ladies um, want better for themselves, you know, mm-hmm. and, and keep their kids, you know. The system has definitely changed because they were locking people up back then. If you had the babies came out substance exposed, they were locking them up. And that whole system. So even learning how that operation of substance abuse and newborns, just learning that whole new system and providing true information. Because if you say Department of Social Services or Protective Services, people are like, they just want to take my kids. Mm-hmm. And after working for the organization, they're like, it's no it's a whole process that you go through before they just come in and take your kids. So even just to be able to give out true information of how, you know, the department of social services work, how the whole process work with being continued to be reunited with your kids, 
before they're, you know, if you don't do what you need to do, of course, they're going to take your kids. So things like that has, um, I'm a certified peer recovery supervisor. And again, being able to work with a homeless person on the street and um, find out that they may have mental health issues and substance abuse issues. Mm-hmm. Being able to call someone and say, okay, I have someone with core caring issues and get them into a shelter overnight and then call another organization to get them a cab to be able to go to another organization. So again, it's all about connecting back to resources. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually volunteer on Tuesdays with Enoch Pratt Library mm-hmm. where uh, on Pennsylvania North Avenue. Mm-hmm. And um, my first day there, I just saw the pain of the people. You know, um, people are they're under the influence and they, they're just sitting in a library. It's like life is just passing them by. And I just began to engage with, with the people that were sitting there and provide, resource, provide resources for them, you know. And sometimes they just want people to talk to. Mm-hmm. Just want somebody to talk to. Don't look past me because of the pain that I'm in. But find out how the pain begin to get me to where I'm at, if that makes sense. Tell me what is, for people who don't know, what is a peer recovery specialist? How does that work? So a certified peer recovery specialist is licensed through the Maryland Addiction Behavior Health Board. We go through extensive training. They teach us ethics, motivational interviewing, ethics, motivational interviewing, (laughs) Um, different courses, emotional Mental health first aid. This was a year and a half long journey to become certified. And again, you don't even have to be a person with a past of substance abuse. You could have been the daughter of someone who had substance abuse problems. Mm -hmm. So it opens up the door for not only the person that's gone through substance abuse, but the person that's affected by it. Mm -hmm. So the person affected by it can now share with others how they overcame. Because when a person uses it, it affects the whole family. It affects the whole community. So again, that's why I became involved in community and activities a lot because I ran the communities down that I was in. I wasn't adding to it. I was taken away from it. Mm -hmm. Um, Sworn in by Mayor Scott on President's Day last year to become a part of the Trauma-Informed Task Force. I work with young people in recovery. Tiffany Scott, I work with her on that board. Mm-hmm. Um, Helm City, communities and engagement. So I'm constantly looking for ways to build the community back up opposed to tearing it down. The Healing Cities Act is something that we've heard in the news, we've seen in action in the past year or two. What do you hope the Healing Cities Act is able to accomplish in Baltimore? Healing City Act, well, you have the Elijah Cummins Healing City Act, which is now the Healing City Act, which means that, you know, we go and we educate what trauma looks like. Um, They started educating libraries, people in the library. I believe that was the first people that they went in and did some training with. But to make it possible for anyone who deals with people in the public, understand what trauma looks like, understand how to address trauma. Mm-hmm. Again, you have a situation, police is called, have that police officer take training to understand that this just may be a mental health crisis and have the necessary people come in to support 
So the whole vision is that we have a healing city, Maryland, that we can heal from all the trauma. And again, this trauma is decades and years and years and years. It's not just happening. It's not going to happen overnight. And that's what I do on the task force with the other members is we come up with policies and guiding principles to try to create some legislation to help address some of this trauma that's happening. So you have Healing City here that we're dealing actively in communities. We're getting people who's already doing the work in communities. We make them a champion of Healing City. So we break down a lot of these silos that's going on. And we have one big whole committee of everybody that's doing different work in the community to come together to work on one accord. And then you have the task force. That's where you're creating the legislation, the policies, the procedures, and you have five different, oh my goodness, don't ask me the five different groups. This isn't the, the most <laughs> embarrassing thing. <laughs> but we broke down into five different sections. And, you know, you have one, one committee that's working on medical. You have mm-hmm. one committee that's working on decolonization. You have another committee that's working on young people. Mm-hmm. So I know um, three out of t- three out of five is not bad. Pretty <laughs> good. <laughs> like you said, it's kind of a marathon. It's not a sprint. So as you're um, forming this work, does it inspire you to sort of be on the ground floor of something that could be transformational for the city? Absolutely, it does inspire me. It does inspire me because again, I'm I'm in the moment of when I'm doing it, and then. I mean, the fact that you're like, oh, this helped Marylanders. I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, it did actually help Marylanders. You know what I mean? So it inspires me to just keep moving forward and learning solutions and ways to help others grow and heal, you know, from a lot of things. But mm-hmm. it does inspire me. Mm-hmm. And my last question I've been asking a lot of people um, this year, what gives you hope for the future in the city of Baltimore? Oh, wow. What gives me hope right now is um, it's really a hard question if I can just be transparent because it, it looks dreadful. It looks really sad and gloom. So right now, the only hope that I can have and hold on to that I can physically, tangibly see and work on is that Healing City and the task force come up with some things to continue to try to Every time somebody is hurt, combated with the task force possibly showing up to support that community, just boots to the ground type work, you know, mm-hmm. not sit back and just keep talking about we're going to do this or we're going to create this bill. So my hope is that we get more of the community members to be boots on the ground and say, we're not putting up with this, to stand in the gap. Not just watch it on TV, and I'm not going to call out no news stations, (laughs) but not just watch on TV, but actually go into the communities and stand up for your community. Mm. So that's my hope. Well, Donna, I really want to thank you for your bravery, for the work that you're doing in the city of Baltimore and across the state of Maryland, and for taking the time to tell your story today. It was truly inspirational, and I really hope that someone out there maybe that was in the situation you were when you were younger hears this and has that hope that they can get to where you are today. Need help connecting to the internet at home? The Pred has hotspots you can check out just like a book. And now they have unlimited data. Stream classes, movies, phone calls, and more. 
All you need is a Pratt Library card. More information at prattlibrary.org. I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow the Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another Free to Be More conversation. Thanks for listening.